Right now, Luke uh, chapter 16 on the Pew Bible, in the Pew Bible, it should be page 875. The last chapter that we, uh, we read, we discovered some parables, perhaps some of the most famous, most, most beloved, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And uh, the emphasis there, the audience there, was uh, the skeptics, those who were uh, opposed to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, but this week, we're going to look, and then into next week, this chapter, we find two parables, and the audience has shifted. Now it's back to those who are disciples already committed to following Jesus. And the subject matter in this uh, chapter, in these two parables, uh, the subject matter is uh, money. Aren't you glad the Bible's so irrelevant? Uh, <laughs> Uh, years ago, I remember there was a young dad in our church in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and the dad was explaining to me that he was driving down the road, and one of his children, who barely old enough to read, looked at a billboard sign that used the term uh, sexy, and they said, well, what, dad, what is that word? And he said, oh, don't worry, uh, that's a bad word. And, uh, and I said, Patrick, why, why did you tell your son that? <laughs> uh, why, why would you tell your children that? It, it, that's not a bad word. Uh, but he understood the, the power of it. We know how it is with both the, the topic of sex uh, and money. They're, they're powerful things. Money is a powerful thing, which means it could be a blessing and it could be a curse. It could, it, it could expose us, right? It could, it, money can expose us to all forms of danger at times. Money can also, at the same time, be an instrument of blessing, a great tool. All of us in some way, shape, or form, have already and will continue to operate and interact with, with money. And as we do, it will reveal our hearts and it will shape our future. There's just no other way around it. doesn't matter how much, doesn't matter what, what path you take. Uh, that, that money and the way that we handle it will shape the direction of our lives. Paul Tripp, a number of years ago, uh, wrote a book called Sex and Money. Um, I've actually got two copies, uh, so if you'd like a free, if you'd like a free one, I dare you to be the bold person to pick this up. <laughs> Therein you will find wisdom. Maybe you're just going to order it on Amazon and pay the money. But hey, here's a free mo- here's a free book on sex and money. In the book, Paul Tripp says, "Money is a danger. Money is a blessing." Your Lord, your Lord Jesus talked about these issues as often as he did because he knows well. The power and importance of money issues. He knows exactly how easily we can be seduced by money. And when it comes to money, he knows how quickly we can lose our way. He knows how susceptible we are to give the love of our hearts to money. And that, that actually, you know, it forms inside of us. We probably, you maybe have experienced this, almost a, a battle, an internal tug of war that can go on. The war, he writes, of money is not first a battle about money. The money you make or the degree to which you have constructed a rational budget. No, this battle is deeply a spiritual battle. So, in other words, it's not about the right information and education and organization of your money and your investments and all of those things. Not that information and administration and The handling of it is unimportant. But at the deeper level, our problem isn't that we are misinformed, ignorant, or that we are disorganized. It is a deeply spiritual thing. 
The Bible has much to say about money. And when it does, and when Jesus in particular speaks about money, as we're about to read, it's not left with a comfortable neutrality. It is very clear. This parable is very much an illustration. I know you just sat down. Can I ask you to stand again as we read these opening 13 verses in deference to the word of God? As Luke records, inspired of God, he also said, that is Jesus to his disciples, there was a rich man, a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so he called to him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig And I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, well, then take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended I know this is going to sound strange, but here it is. is. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth who will entrust you with true riches and if you have not been faithful in what with that which is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money you may be seated Let's ask God's help. Father, we do ask that you would uh, help us. We don't want to presume upon you anything, but we know that with you is the fountain of life and wisdom. So we pray that you would provide clarity and hope as we uh, long for your return. Uh, Even as someone prayed earlier that you'd make all things right and new. But we need wisdom to navigate. So we ask for it now in Christ's good name. Amen. A few years ago, a San Diego journalist, John Wilkins, wrote a, a piece It was commemorating the 10-year anniversary of one of the greatest, most destructive fires that California had ever had. It was known as the Cedar Fire. And, uh, you know, the numbers that speak to the fury of this fire are pretty significant. He writes, 273,000 acres burned, 2,200 homes destroyed. But the number that jolts us the most, he says, at the 10-year anniversary is this number, eight. Eight, he writes, that's how many people were killed in a single hillside pocket of rural homes in the Barona Resort and Casino off of a roughly mile-long stretch of road. Um, it's a place that people were, were known to go out to you know, have some breathing room and so, some beautiful views of the vistas. There were about a dozen houses that were built under those towering cedar oaks. But uh, unfortunately, as one of the survivors of that, th- that very small community interviewed said, we feel really lucky. A man named Lonnie Belanti writes, he escaped with his wife, his 11 and 13-year-old daughters, 
And this is what he says. We got out with the most valuable thing, which is each other. The rest is not important. But others couldn't say that. Of those eight, because they died. Why? Because in some cases they wouldn't say the rest of it is not important. One of the women in the neighborhood, Robin Sloan, a 45-year-old mother, tried to warn others. But instead of leaving, she returned to pack and gather some more mementos and other items. She did not make it out in time. So why, why would I highlight this? I think it's just one illustration. It's one of many stories where people can be motivated by fear of losing material goods and possessions. And in the end, miss out on far greater joys. What am I saying? We desperately need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom to navigate and to have our focus so that when we're presented with a crossroads like that, it's clear what we are to do and what direction we are to go in the face of temptation. Two things going on. I just want to briefly note them. You see them listed in the order of service there. The craftiness and the caution. Now let's just go back over and trace part of this story. Because if you were dialed in, you might say, this is kind of a peculiar parable, right? <laughs> I mean, I, why would Jesus, uh, why would the owner, and then subsequently Jesus, be commending you know, this, uh, this dishonest practice? Well, let's retrace, right? There's a man who's so wealthy... Uh, he's also, I guess, a, a creditor. He's so wealthy that he has someone who manages all of it, all, all of his possessions, and, uh, and, and essentially operates in the place and represents uh, the owner. The owner, I guess, is away. He hears a report that this man has been lazy, that this man has been wasting uh, some of his possessions and resources and the, the handling of his business. So he calls him in. He says, in essence, let's do an audit. You know, I've heard some things, so let's do an audit. And so the manager immediately knows that he's under the gun. He knows that he's going to inevitably lose his job. And so he weighs his options. Now, notice he doesn't say, well, let me just go ahead and just gorge myself on the rest of all of this. Um, no, he becomes crafty. He is, he is shrewd. He says to himself, I've got this, this exit strategy. Granted, it's a dishonest one. But he goes to the various debtors and he says, they just highlight two of them, but there's probably more. And he says, hey, let's cut a deal. I know you owe 100. Let's just call it 50. And he thinks to himself, this will engender me. This will endear me to people. And this will hopefully engender a spirit of, of hospitality because I'm going to need some help because I'm too, I'm too old uh, to, to be a day laborer. And I'm, and I'm too proud to be a beggar. So I, I better come up with something. And so this is what he devises. And of course, that helps his reputation, probably helps out the reputation of the owner as well. <laughs> you know, they all perceive him as being this really generous guy, cutting down the debts. Wow, this is wonderful. This is not small money, by the way. We're talking thousands of dinar, which would have been years you know, worth of wages in some case. This is quite a bit of, of, uh, of cash. But we enter into the logic of his dishonest exit strategy. And then we go, well, then how could he... You know, commend this man, right? What is it that, you know, what is it that transpires here? Um, well, he wins favor, yes. And, uh, and then I don't think it's that veiled because the owner sees exactly what he has done. Let's look at the text again, verse 8. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He's not just wasting his time. And, he's not, and, and we know that Jesus isn't commending the ethics of this because he does, after all, call him, labels him 
identifies him as dishonest. But he's not commending his integrity, he's commending his ingenuity. He's not saying, he's able to parse this out and say, listen, here's an example of someone who wasn't right, but at the very least they were resourceful. He's not, he's not passive, he's active. He's, he's, he's not stagnant, he's looking, anticipating forward, he's making preparations, he's demonstrating creativity, he's being shrewd. And then he goes on to say there in verse 8, For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, as one New Testament commentator put it, Daryl Bach, people in the world give more thought to their physical well-being than the righteous do with their spiritual being. They think about, it's natural for people to think about their financial future. It's it's natural for people to think about their health and wealth and prosperity and have goals and, and fashion their lives looking out. And he's saying, we would do well to say, how do I how do I honor God with my life, knowing where I'm going, knowing where I will end up? Are we being crafty and street smart to, you know, even speaking spiritually, even materially with our, our, our root as, as people of light, with our root, our heart in the right place and our goal with the fruitfulness of, of, of faithfulness in view? Our money doesn't go with us. Let me state the obvious. Maybe the part that's not so obvious is the fact that it is not our own. This parable is communicating, like other places in Scripture, that He is the owner. And we are privileged and blessed to be stewards, managers, that is, of His. It's all His. Verse 10 reminds us, let's look at the passage again. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest with much. And we cannot be good managers with temporal things like our time and our treasure. Then how can we, we we of all people should be forward thinking about what verse 11 says are the true riches. The Boston Globe did a story about employee theft. This was like 10 years ago. The Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimated that theft by employees costs American companies 20 to 40 billion dollars a year. To pay for it, we absorb the cost of that, which is about 400 dollars a person per year. Obviously, that's a lot of pens and legal pads and K cups and you know whatever else, right? We don't even work from uh, you know from the office anymore in some cases. But perhaps we should take it into consideration also the wasted time, the false sick days. The fabrication of expense reports, that only adds billions and billions more. Not to say, not to even mention the the robbery of being unproductive as employees. Of course, there are many instances when employers themselves take advantage of and steal from their workers as well. Demanding more hours than a contract allows. Piling on responsibilities for the best employees that work hard and not sharing other areas, what about, you could go on and on and on, with, because it becomes to credit and lending, unjust profits, people that hold others in bondage. It's one of the reasons that evermore we see credit card debt rising, trillions and trillions, the list goes on, insurance fraud, 
filing false claims, cheating on our taxes, digital, the whole digital realm, pirating, stealing intellectual property, violating copyright, so on and so forth. Students, what about you? Right? Cheating, plagiarism, it's not a small thing, right? Our lives, our hearts are meant to run on different tracks than that. We, we might say to ourselves, but I, I know I'm supposed to, to love God and serve God, but I want to make money. Some of you were tempted to say amen to the last part. Uh, let's try this again. We talk about loving God and serving God and making money. But I'm trying to tell you, those are not two different paths that never touch or converge. And I want the children, the young people of our church to understand the relationship between those two things. We need to listen to our conscience, perhaps even have it retrained and refreshed. We have resources, right? We have time. We have talents. We have treasures. And they could be a blessing to other people around us. One of the qualifications, right? What are one of the qualifications when we set these men apart, right? Because it was over a year ago that we asked you as a congregation to nominate for elder and deacon. The list of qualifications are clearly spelled out in Scripture in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And one of those clearly says in 1 Timothy 3 that he must manage his own household well. Why? Because if he can't do that, if his household is filled with disrespect to, the children who disrespect him and it's chaotic, then how would we expect him to handle, the Bible says, the household of God, the church well? So again, this principle of stewardship in the small things, whatever your job is, whatever your responsibility is, whether you're a student or whether you're an executive, responsible for a lot of other people. Let's move on. I've already kind of gotten into the caution here, right? The caution is, as stewardship, we are to express just, you know, he wants us to have a word of caution concerning our hearts here. Because money is a good tool, and it can be a bad, and it is a bad master. It may be tempting to think, well, fine, you know, because I mean, what, but the wisdom is very clear in verse 13. The warning, the caution to us, read it again, verse 13, look at it, no one no servant can serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, it's not possible, you cannot serve God and money. It might be tempting to think, well then fine then. Let's just go do what the Roman Catholics do with their, with their monastic lifestyle and just live on a bowl of soup every day and have no possessions or no personal property. Let's become a monk. But that is not the calling that most of us obviously have. And it wouldn't help us avoid covetousness or greed. It could still be there, very much so. It's understanding. Some might think, well, fine, this is an example of why the Bible is telling us that we shouldn't think about and give consideration to money. No, actually, it is entirely the opposite. It is saying, this is commending to us that we should be very mindful about money, that we should be very careful, that we should be shrewd and wise 
and active and proactive and forward thinking. And of all people, we should be people who are wise and prepared, that we should also be people who are generous. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's all his translated. All of it. All of it is his. Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth, moth and rust destroyed and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth, moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's face it, we love stuff. I, I, we do. We love stuff. We prioritize money because of things that we can buy with that money. But even if we are thrifty and we are careful, even if we think that we're more generous than so-and-so or whatever, Jesus is saying, be careful. Don't love money. Love God and worship him. Jesus is inviting us to treasure that which cannot be taken or stolen and cannot fade away or be destroyed by things like fire. And he's not talking merely about life and family, like that's the most important thing. He's talking about our eternity, our eternal inheritance. And you don't have that. We don't, we don't, we don't walk with wisdom in those realms of the pursuit of, of God. And, and you can't serve, you can't serve both God and money because if you serve money, Instead of money serving you, we, we should make money that it might serve us and not we finding ourselves enslaved by way of debt uh, to, to money. How would we have it? How would we walk with wisdom in those pathways? Some might say, like I mentioned, a monastic lifestyle. Well, it's not finding, denying our need for gain, but wanting God and what God wants for us more than we want what we want for us. There's a great passage in the New Testament elsewhere that brings clarity to this. Godliness, Paul writes to Timothy, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is, a, is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through the cravings that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The eternal God, it's not, people misquote this passage. It's not money that's the root of all kinds of evil. It is the love of money. And hold so desperately we need contentment. We think to ourselves, well, I'd be really content if I just wasn't somewhere in the middle, right? I just have to watch those people. I won't even name any places or towns or your square footage of homes or types of cars. We say, if I had all of that, then I would be content. Or if I just had nothing, basically, I would be content. But poor me, pity me, I have to live in, you know, affluent America somewhere in the middle. Friends... It's not about the money. Contentment is rooted in our hearts. 
Author and theologian Michael Horton puts it best. It's not poverty or wealth that leads us to contentment and trust in the Lord, but the confidence that if God provided so richly for our salvation by choosing, redeeming, calling, adopting, and justifying us, and by sending His Spirit to grow up to, to us, to grow up, uh, us up in Christ's likeness, then surely we can count on Him for the less essential matters of our daily existence. Just think about that. Past, present, future, our past sins, Christ has covered them up. My guilt is gone. I'm not talking about what's in your bank account. I'm talking about the spiritual audit. If we were to take it and say, have I been a good manager of all these things? That his, that his righteousness has covered my guilt. My present struggles are not hopeless because I have Christ's spirit living in me. My future is not known to me. You don't know your future. I don't know your future. I'm not in control of it. You're not either. And yet, we have a glorious inheritance, a gain that cannot be taken. It was afforded to us. Why and how? Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Gain is good. The Bible doesn't say otherwise. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what we should be longing for is contentment in Christ. Jesus says, I know you. I know you're tired of and weary of your circumstances or the weight of a broken world. I know that that times we, we, we were restless. And he's saying your hunger, your hunger and your thirst can't be satisfied anywhere else. Come to me and find rest. Come to me thirsty and I will satisfy you. We ask for provision. But don't miss it in the Lord's Prayer. That we pray, and we'll pray it here in a moment, for our daily bread. He knows what we need. We pray for faith and for contentment. He wants to help us find it. Even if contentment so regularly, easily evades us, we know that our God is merciful. He's not stingy. He's generous. He can provide for us by His Spirit and by His grace, contentment. As Christians, we should understand that we're called to be faithful stewards and managers of all that He's given to us. He's the owner, not us. Jerry Bridges, an author that I love, says that we should have three basic attitudes. There are, there are three basic attitudes towards wealth and material possessions. Here they are. What's yours is mine, and I will take it. That's called theft, right? The second is, what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. That's probably the most common one, because we're, by nature, selfish, and we're focused on self. The third way of handling and viewing and understanding our possessions and wealth is, what is mine is God's, and therefore I will share it. In fact... I will multiply it and then I will share it and share it and share it and share it because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then in view, the motivation for all this is what? Is who? Our gracious Savior, our generous Savior because He at the high price came down and it's beautiful and and right before He dies, He prays in the garden in John 17 and He cries out to the Father before His death on the cross The sheep that are mine. Jesus says that we 
The body of Christ are his possession, his bride, whom he loves. And I love the possessive language that Jesus uses in John 10 when he says, no one can snatch or steal them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Friends, our inheritance is not just a peaceful mansion in the new heavens and the new earth. Not less than that, okay? And some of you, uh, far more than me, will be adorned. All of us in white Clothed in the righteousness of Christ, only the blood of Christ can blot out all the darkness. I don't understand the math of that. I certainly don't understand the, uh, the, the physics or artistry of that. I just know that it's the precious blood of Jesus that doesn't matter how much you give and give and give and give and give and give and give. You cannot purchase it. It is a free gift of God in the gospel that the blood of Jesus cleanses off and wipes away the darkness and makes us stand white. And some people will be adorned in ways that are more glorious than others in the new heavens and new earth. And that is a mystery to me. All of us, though, will be content and we will all be focused on the things that are right and true and beautiful in Christ's glory. Our inheritance is God. The reward is God. It is Him. That is our motivation for being wise and generous managers. Let us treasure this, friends. Brothers and sisters, let us treasure him. Father, thank you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for providing our daily bread and this in abundance. Thank you, God, for your law. Thank you that it's the tracks that our hearts were intended to run on. I pray that we would come in repentance and and, and walk and deal and think. Even if there's business we need to do with you. There are people here, hearts that need to be surrendered that we need to confess things, that we need to let go of things, that we need to give up things, that we might experience not bondage and fear, but freedom. It's hard for us to imagine that, Lord. Give us faith. Help us to be good managers. Forgive us, Lord. When our conscience reveals things, may we run to you and to Jesus and find hope. Use our resources, Lord, as a church to be a blessing to others and to glorify you. We pray all this. In the name of Jesus, who taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father.